1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm spending the day with Zach today, uh, and he has lined the whole day up with uh, his wheelhouse, basically. So, Zach, what have you got and found us today? Could it be 19th century military stuff?
2: No, we're doing some ancient. I'm kidding. We're absolutely doing 19th century military. (laughs) Do
1: you know what? There was a moment there when you said, no, we're doing ancient, that I'm pretty sure I saw our guest panic.
3: (laughs) 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 I know nothing!
2: (laughs) To be honest, that's just a byline for me all the way through these recordings. I know nothing. (laughs) But as you can hear chuckling in the background, we are Mm. joined by my trove. Mai was on a little while back talking about the charge of the heavy brigade during the Crimean War. He's a true crime and fiction writer and author, well, true crimes and a crime fiction writer, important distinction there, um, author of The Pocket Hercules, a biography of William Morris, who led the 17th Lancers in the charge of the Light Brigade. And as we interviewed him last time, uh, he's written on the charge of the heavy brigade, Scarlet's 300 in the Crimea. But... Off the back of the last episode, we decided that we needed a bit more Crimean and Victorian army stuff. So we said to Mai, how do you feel about coming back to talk about the women during the Crimean War? And he very kindly agreed. So, Mai,
3: welcome back to History Hack. How are you? Thank you, Zach. I'm very well. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, so last time you were here, uh, you enlightened me with the fact that there was a charge of a heavy brigade. I didn't even know there was a heavy brigade (laughs) uh, until you came on last time. Zach, take away.
2: So let's dive into Britain, the army and women within the army. I have a sort of knowledge of how we don't treat women right in the British army during the Napoleonic period. I'm sceptical that things have improved much in the 40 odd years to the Crimean War. I'm hoping that you're going to uh, tell me that I'm wrong and that I should be optimistic. But what are the traditional roles for women in war in Britain during this period?
3: Well, I'm afraid you're, you're right, Zach. Very little had changed in the, in the long peace between 1815 and uh, 1854. Um, traditionally, the, the role of women was simply to wave their menfolk bye-bye with a handkerchief. Um, and it was still true, of course, in 1914. In the Great War, women of Britain say go and the men went uh, and the women hoped they'd come back. Uh, And that was how it was throughout the whole of the 19th century. Um, We do have the situation. where women played less of a role, in fact, then uh, than they did in the 20th century. For example, um, there were no women in munitions factories. It was all done by men. Um, there were no official nurses with the army. Uh, that was a, a male role too. Um, we're talking about misogyny writ large, but it, I don't think it was deliberate. I don't think it was intentional. It was simply the way it was. Uh, and we do have a huge social distinction, of course, uh, among women because of who their husbands were. So traditionally, you have colonels and their ladies, you have officers and their wives, and you have other ranks and their women. And that, that sort of gradation is very much there. Rudyard Kipling, many, many years later wrote a poem in which he said that uh, the colonel's lady and Judy O'Grady are sisters under the skin. And I think that's absolutely right. Judy O'Grady, a fictional wife of of an Irish private soldier, uh, compared with the colonel's lady, they're all women. They're all facing the the same horrors of war when they faced war, or they're uh, facing the same horrors of anxiety when their men are away.
2: I mean, at least it's not quite as bad as my b- great bugbear of the British army at the end of the Peninsular War, which is, so the, the armies amassed uh, an unofficial following in terms of battalion whites, people who aren't officially on the strength. And rather than, you know, do the right thing and transport them back, um, they just go, yeah, thanks, bye, we're going to leave you there. <laughs> which is why you see a big, big spike in desertion, almost double anything you've seen in the worst moments of the Peninsula War, because they just can't be bothered to do the right thing. So it's slightly better than that. Yes. but Not much.
3: Not much. No, no, no. Uh, As we shall see, uh, for the women who were left behind, who didn't go out with their men in the Crimea, they were simply abandoned. The government had no responsibility for them and ordered their regiments. They simply had to leave the barracks uh, and make their way as best they could, which effectively meant the streets, the sweat, trades the workhouse or prostitution that was it
1: it's just mind-boggling isn't it that there's just no duty of care having split the family unit to these women
3: absolutely no it it makes it makes no sense at all and 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 you wonder why the the men themselves put up with that to be honest um but it's it it's one of those things tradition i think is incredibly strong Um, it had always been thus. And uh, it it, it takes a revolution, basically, to to change that mindset. And we ain't had a revolution of that kind since the middle of the 17th century.
1: It is insanity. Um, So in practice, then, what did happen to these women? I bet you've come across some really sordid tales.
3: Well, you you have to split it into the officer's wives, who, who had a very different experience uh, and the other ranks um and uh, really that that's what it's all about it's all about the the level you go into it at um the women who stayed behind of the uh, other ranks we know nothing about them because they simply disappear um those who had children couldn't go anyway now that's the right call uh, i think it would have been awful to send mothers with or without their children out to the Crimea, that didn't happen. So if you were a mum already, uh, or in theory, if you were pregnant, uh, then you stayed behind and coped as best you could. I've come across one example of a woman who clearly was pregnant because she gave birth on a ship on a a troop ship going out to the Crimea. Um, She survived, the baby survived, and as far as I know, they both came back, which is an incredible piece of luck. And that's all it was, it was luck rather than care. Shall we
2: start breaking it down in terms of the experiences for those who were at the front? So let's start with the officer's wives. Do we have many examples of officers' wives going out? Um, I'm thinking, again, apologies, this information is sort of 40 years out of date, but during the Peninsula War, um, less so the Waterloo campaign has to be said, but during the Peninsula War, you didn't get many uh, officers' wives going out, partly because of distance, partly because it wasn't a particularly great environment for living the life that they were more accustomed to. But you did get some who... um, basically joined the army because they married officers um out there joanna smith uh, springs to mind who later goes on to become lady smith of mm-hmm. lady smith fame um mm-hmm. out in south africa um so d- do we have an equivalent during the crimean war do we have officers wives going out there
3: yes we do um the uh, the there are these people called TGs at the time, traveling gentlemen, uh, and they were rich guys, married or single, uh, who just went around the world to places of excitement. Um, an exact equivalent today would be people going out to Ukraine uh, just to see what's going on. Uh, we don't need to now because it's brought into our homes ev- every day uh, because of, of media. But without media, you can imagine newspapers at the time uh, by the time, for example, news of the charge of the Light Brigade came through to Britain, charge happened on October the 25th. It was the middle of November before anybody here knew about it. Um, you've got that huge gap, that, that huge delay, and people wanted to know more so that they would go out and, and watch the pretty battle. Um, and they took their wives with them. Uh, in the case of officers' wives um, whose husbands were already on the way uh, or were already out there, then they would go off their own bat. There was a very enterprising company called Inman & Co uh, who were travel agents and they would take you out to the Crimea, uh, put you up in hotels or on the way for about a fiver a head. Uh, which is ridiculously cheap today, but it it wasn't very expensive in the 1850s either. So several women did that, and there are some classic examples. If I can give you just a few of them. The, The most famous one has got to be Fanny Jubilee. Um, because she wrote an account uh, of the war, a journal kept during the Russian war, it's called, still available in print now. Um, She was the wife of Captain Henry Dubely, paymaster of the eight hussars. Uh, The French called her Lamazon, the Amazon, because she looked like a female warrior galloping over the dead. That's a bit harsh on Fanny. She didn't actually seek out gory sights at all but she was there she sailed on board a ship called the shooting star um from exeter and um they they went through the um um, Straits of Gibraltar, uh, across the Med, um, up the Black Sea. And she wrote down everything she saw, the most gorgeous descriptions of, of travel. This, of course, from a woman who had never been out of England before. It must have been the most amazing uh, experience. She was a keen horsewoman. She had um, three ponies with her, uh, one of which died on the ship. Uh, and she was heartbroken about that. She spends about three pages sobbing uh, over this poor horse. But she had the most appalling maid who did nothing at all, um, according to Fanny. Uh, so she spends another three pages whinging about her. Um, Fanny is, is a great read. I, I do recommend her to, to readers, really, because uh, she's a hell of a snob. Um and she's got all the prejudices you expect of a, of a middle uh, upper middle class woman. Um, but she 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 really does give us a very colourful account of, of what life was like in the Crimea. And she's incredibly bitchy about other ladies who were there as well. Um if I can just mention. Another one. um, There was um, a woman called Adelaide Cresswell, whose uh, wife was a captain in the 11th Hussars, and he died of cholera out in Varna, didn't even get to the Crimea. Um, And this is what she says about it. This was in May 1854. She says, we expected something rather fashionable and brilliant. But after waiting some time, a woman came among the troop horses, so dirty, with such uncombed, scurfy hair, with black nails, such a dirty cotton gown open at the neck. Oh, you never had a kitchen maid so dreadful. Mrs. Cresswell allows no woman near her tent, so who empties her slops or how she manages, I can't divine. I mean, isn't that just great? So Mrs. <laughs> Cresswell did. Get the thumbs up from uh,
1: A <laughs> bit it? Love it. Don't you love it? This is superb. <laughs> that kind of source you want to find totally indiscreet and horrible.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, uh, if, if if you know the film Tony Richardson's Charge of the Light Brigade, which is my all-time favourite history movie, um, there's that great scene where uh, Lord Cardigan seduces Fanny D'Oubrely on board his yacht. As far as I know, it never happened. She was intensely loyal to her husband Henry, very much in love with him, and I don't think that took place. It's a shame because I would I would love it to have, but hey, you can't have everything. <laughs> So we've had Adelaide Creswell. We got Fanny Jubilee. Lady Errol was another um, officer's wife. Um, her husband was in the Sixtieth Rifles, and because she was Lady Errol, of course, she's a cut above Fanny Jubilee. So Fanny barely mentions her because she was obviously outclassed in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, who else? Oh, Agnes Paget. Now she was the wife of George of the Fourth Light Dragoons. Um, so her father-in-law was. The one who lost his leg at Waterloo, Uxbridge. Uh, And um, she was uh, a gorgeous-looking girl, apparently, although there were no photographs of her, as far as I know. Um, She was described by one officer as the Belle of the Crimea. You can imagine how that went down with Fanny, uh, who rather thought that she was the Belle of the Crimea, but there you go. We do have one photograph of Fanny sitting on her horse, and uh, she, like all ladies, of course, rode side saddle. Um, I say all ladies because, if I can just, en passant, as it were, mention the French, uh, they had the most amazing organisation. They had ladies who were called cantinières or virondières. Uh, They supplied um, the troops with drink, with food. Um, They did rudimentary nursing on the battlefield. They wore trousers, like the men, uh, very flashy uniforms indeed, and they rode astride just like the, the, the men did. The British were in awe of, of them because they were so well-organized, uh, but British ladies, of course, were horrified because to dress like that, even in the seat of war, was not acceptable. So, yeah, they, 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 they are a colourful bunch, these, the, the, these ladies, but they did have servants, and they, although they had to rough it, uh, sleeping in tents and that kind of thing, where possible, they slept on board ship. In Balaklava Harbour um, and uh, tried to keep away from uh, the, the worst horrors of the war, for which I, I can't blame them at all.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, we can't talk about women in the Crimea without going where we always have to go. Uh, Florence Nightingale, in case any of our listeners don't know, tell us about her role as a nurse during the conflict.
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Florence was a a middle-class girl and very unusual. She she was deeply religious, but she also wanted to do her bit on the medical front. Um, You can see how how appalling uh, nurse training was in this country, in that there were no training establishments for nurses at all uh, in the um, late uh, 1840s, early 1850s. So she trained in Germany, a place called Kaiserwurt, Um, She volunteered for the Crimea and got out there simply because uh, a family friend was Sidney Herbert, who was secretary for war. So as a member of the cabinet, he was very much inside, could pull strings. And so out she went. She took 38 uh, ladies with her, uh, all of them trained abroad. Uh, and uh, they got to the hospital base at Scutari, which is not in the Crimea. In fact, it's, it was then seven days sailing away from the Crimea. So any books that tell you Florence was in the Crimea are wrong. Uh, she did visit it twice, but only very briefly. Um, Scutari was a hellhole. Um, It had a barracks there which could house 6,000 men, and that was converted into a base hospital. There was a field hospital at Balaclava, a very tiny one, but the base hospital was the big one where Florence worked. She got there early in November 54, just as hundreds, later thousands of wounded, were coming in from the Battle of Inkerman. And, of course, she then had to cope with all the problems of the winter with uh, frostbite and and similar conditions. Um, At first, the army doctors refused to have anything to do with her. They were very dismissive, um, downright rude. And the implication was, what does me, a woman, know uh, about battlefield wounds? Um, So she very wisely, and I just have this image in my mind of her doing this, basically folded her arms and said, right then, you carry on and did nothing for the first two months of her being there. And of course, matters got worse. The beds were overflowing. People were lying on the floor in their own vomit and and excrement. Uh, And eventually, they literally had to beg Florence and her nurses to do something. Then she stepped in and did. There was a dead horse blocking the um, water supply in the hospital, which she discovered and had it removed. So at least there was clean water. And she got bandages and money in vast quantities sent out uh, from well-wishers at home. I must stress that this money did not come from the government. It came from charities who were horrified at the conditions the men were facing and also conditions that the women were, were facing. But all that was private enterprise. It it it, it wasn't uh, a national response at all.
2: We also have to talk about Mary Seacole, right? Because, yeah. you know, this is... Mary Seacole's the person who ends up sort of being pushed to one side and sort of seems to exist within, or traditionally has existed, within Florence Nightingale's shadow. So talk us through her and what she was doing.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads
0: and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
1: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: Mary Sickle is a fascinating character, and it's a shame we don't know more about her. She does feature quite rightly, or has featured in a number of Black History Months. Uh, Articles, which is right and proper, but that shouldn't be the case. Uh, We should know about her anyway. Um, She's not included in in various general dictionaries of biography. Um, Even one I came across written in the 1950s, by which time you would have thought uh, that would have happened. Um, The problem was sheer racism. Um, Mary's father was a Scottish officer, uh, but her mother was a a freeborn black Jamaican woman. Um, And if you look at portraits of of Mary, she does look extremely Jamaican. Um, She qualified as a nurse, although not very well qualified and certainly nowhere near the level of Florence. She applied to Florence to join her nurses. Florence turned her down. Uh, she said because she didn't think she was sufficiently well qualified. I think it more likely because she was black uh, and Florence didn't think that would work in a white army of the 1850s. Um, I may be being unkind to Florence there, but this is the the image that I, I, I get. Not to be deterred, uh, Mary um, took a slightly different tack. She actually had business cards printed, if I can quote what they said. She had these circulated before she left England. Mrs. Mary Seacole, later of Kingston, Jamaica, respectfully announces to her former kind friends and to the officers of the army and Navy generally that she has taken her passage in the screw steamer Hollander, intending on her arrival at Balaclava to establish a mess table and comfortable quarters for sick and convalescent officers. So talk about organised, absolutely magic. She went out there, she had a hotel built, the British Hotel with the Union Jack flying outside uh, and people turned up and they did have the most comfortable time. And she used her nursing skills to uh, patch up uh, anybody who was ill, anybody who was wounded. Um, I have to make you all aware that we're talking about some snobbery here as well. Notice she's talking about officers, not other ranks. So that that was a bit of a blot on her scutcheon, really. Uh, But she couldn't have coped with numbers uh, had anybody turned up. The hotel was really very small. And sadly, it was demolished almost as soon as the war was over. Uh, It it went. Um, Florence Nightingale got no medals at all for the Crimea. Uh, Women weren't awarded them, no matter what they did. Um, Mary Seacole didn't either, but she was given medals uh, by uh, various friends. Uh, both in the British forces uh, and in the French. Um, So she came home to London uh, with this huge array of medals pinned (laughs) to her jacket, uh, which must have been a lovely sight. But polite society didn't want to know and again we have to come back to to racism um and she just dis- disappears basically she she drifts away and you hear no more about her after after uh, she wrote her book she was another superb read the adventures of mrs Seacole in many lands that was 1857 and after that virtually nothing
2: that's massively sad in itself isn't it it is, um, it is. but you know she, she does all of this and then Just gets pushed to the side. Can I kind of wind us back a little bit? Because you're you're talking there about how um Mary was focusing on the the officers. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for the rank and file, and particularly the rank and file who have wives perhaps out there with them. Yep. What what's the procedure if they have, let's say, a minor wound? What are the the if you like the other ranks wives? Mm Heavy use of inverted commas there. Yeah, um, doing it and what stories do we have from them because quite often that section of society wasn't as literate mm-hmm. as you know the officers wives who obviously are going to be educated and so on so what do we know about them?
3: Yep. Well, one in six went out. Um, I think the government's intention was that they shouldn't get to the Crimea at all. They should be dropped off at various places en route. There were various areas where the ships put in for refueling if, if they were steam driven. Um, so they might get to Malta uh, or they might get, supposed suppose, to Constantinople, today's Istanbul, uh, maybe to Varna. But they were not supposed to get to the Crimea itself. In fact, a lot of them did, but there was no transport provided across the Black. Sea, So they had to pay for that themselves or somehow casual lift, which several of them did. The numbers we're not sure about. uh, It looks to be somewhere about 750 women. um, And of those three quarters didn't come back. Uh, I must assume that most of them died, um, almost certainly of disease because none of them was actually in the firing line as such, with one possible exception I'll come to in a minute. Um, uh, or they simply found different um, lives for themselves. We have to remember that very few of them were actually married to their menfolk. They were common law wives in most cases. Um, so there had been no religious ceremony, not even a civil ceremony, and therefore they may well have taken up with somebody else um, in, in uh, Varna, Constantinople, whatever. I, we have no idea because the information simply isn't there um they had incredible hardship. Um, everybody who saw them described them as being uh, ragged uh, and rough looking and filthy. Uh, they usually had one dress that they wore all the time. Uh, they had to put up with incredible privations. They had no privacy uh, more than they did at home. At home in army barracks, it was simply uh, a, a, a curtain strung between married quarters and single men's quarters. Um, and it was the same in, in the Crimea. They acted as nurses, they acted as water carriers, they acted as cooks and laundry women. Uh, Colonel Hodge, who commanded the 4th Dragoon Guards, um, was particularly fond of um, one of the ladies, Mrs. Rogers, who was the wife of a sergeant in his regiment. Uh, And he tried to get her a medal because of the incredible work she'd done in keeping the morale of the regiment high. Uh, but the government wasn't having that. They didn't give medals out at all. Um, if I can mention one woman, though, because she, she does seem to be absolutely extraordinary. Her name was Smith. You, you mentioned Joanna Smith earlier. There's, there's no family link as far as I know, but interesting coincidence. Um, this one uh, was the wife of uh, a soldier, a private soldier, uh, in the 93rd Highlanders. Now, picture the scene, October the 25th, um 1854, uh, the Russians have advanced early in the morning, caught the British napping. Uh, They've uh, taken the forts on the Causeway Heights uh, and they're marching towards the British camp. Uh, The nearest unit who could have stopped them were the 93rd and 42nd Highlanders, um, maybe 250 men on foot except for the officers who were mounted. The other, rest of the infantry were far too far away. They had been summoned, but they wouldn't get there for maybe three hours. Uh, so the Highlanders are holding the fort, literally. Um, William Russell at the Times saw them and called them the Thin Red Streak, which came to be known as the Thin Red Line uh, because they were wearing their scarlet uniforms. They had Turks with them. In fact, more Turks than there were uh, Scotsmen. But as soon as the Russians advanced, the Turks broke and ran away, stealing what they could on the way, by the way, from, from the local camp. So they ran past a handful of wives, one of whom was Mrs. Smith the wife of um, this particular private in the 93rd. She was so livid with the Turks running away that she grabbed hold of the nearest one, belted him around the head with a a pot or a pan, swore at him, calling him a bloody heathen. uh, And how dare he leave when these Christian men are fighting for him, which wasn't quite true, but you could see what she meant. Um, the, The Turk was horrified. Uh, And kept saying, Kokana, Kokana, which means madam, madam. Um, But she wouldn't have any of it, and she continued to to belt him until he finally got away and ran. Huge cheer from the Highland troops. Even though they were facing a massive crowd of Russians, they were so pleased to see their their women fighting in this way. So she came to be known as Kokana Smith, uh, and uh, both. she and her husband lived to tell the tale. They, they came home uh, and she was regarded as a great heroine back in back in Scotland, which I think is a, is a lovely story. But the, the saddest um, thing that I come across in, in researching the women, it's long gone now because simply time has passed, but there was uh, a wooden grave marker somewhere in the Crimea which had been chiselled presumably by a husband who was barely literate. And it simply says woman English now isn't that just heartbreaking don't even know her name just that she was female uh, and her nationality and I think that's incredibly sad.
1: It is awful and you just think like people like Mary Seacole and these women just marginalised out of history at the time and now we can never get them back.
3: No. Absolutely. There, there is, and I'm sure you both know it, uh, at least there was in the National Army Museum in Chelsea, a life-size statue of uh, a, a woman in the front line. It's, it's from the Crimean period, I think, Zach, I could be wrong, but she is, she's got her wounded husband over her shoulder. Uh, and she's got a child with her. She's holding the kid's hand. She's got the bloke over her shoulder and a water canteen and a blanket and she's trudging forward. And I think that image is just terrific. It it sums up um, female heroism at its best. I don't think you'll ever be able to improve on that.
2: We forget the staggering hardiness of the, these women and what they endured without complaining as well um Absolutely. and it's no exaggeration to say that had it not been for these women in various forms of, across the, the the 18th and particularly the 19th century um the the army would have struggled to keep itself together i'm not just talking from a morale aspect i'm talking about practical day-to-day stuff and i can think of a number of examples of women doing exactly that sort of thing during the peninsula war 40 years earlier where you know the army's in retreat they haven't got food the husband is on the cusp of collapsing and these women are just sort of going okay i've got a child in one hand but you can't walk anymore i'm going to flaming well carry you yeah. and you know and the accounts of turn around and say this woman saved this guy's life and they had huge they were hugely uh, respected within their regiments for that willingness to mm-hmm. just endure those privations and shut up about it and just get on with it. It's yeah, incredible. Absolutely. And it's a tragedy that they just get completely shoved to the side and forgotten about.
3: Yes, for you're, yes, you're, you're right. I, the respect within the regiments, but above that, nothing. From, exactly. from the government of the day, barely a mention at all. It it's, it's appalling.
1: Before we go on to talk about how, nonetheless, they might have shaped the future of the army, I need to ask about the Russian women as well. So Russia, if anything, is... Culturally ahead of us, uh, the idea of a fiercely strong Russian woman is positive in Russian historical culture. Um, but this time or other times in the First World War, they're the only ones with uh, like bona fide units of female combatants in the First World War. Um, and actually, uh, like, there are characters all throughout Russian cultural history of strong women. So do we have any stories from their side in this conflict?
3: I haven't come across any. Zach will know more about this for point of view of eighteen twelve, perhaps, and and, and the uh, French invasion there. And you're absolutely right about the female battalions in in the First World War. Um, photographs show these incredibly scary looking women who are prepared to lay down their lives first for the czar then for communism whichever side they're on uh, there's nothing like that at all that i've come across in the 1850s just like the traveling gentlemen uh ladies and gentlemen came out from moscow they came out from st petersburg uh coming down to the crimea which you must remember was already uh, a tourist resort for them it was it was Holiday place. It's a
1: royal palace at Levada.
3: Absolutely, yeah. that that's exactly right. Um, so they they came down to, uh, to 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 watch to watch the the goings on, but after the Alma, the infantry battle uh, in September, uh, they realised it was actually a pretty grim bloodbath, and they all went home. And as far as I know, they they didn't come back. Undoubtedly, the women who were stuck in Sebastopol, which was under siege, of course. And we've seen far too much of that, have we not, over the last uh, uh, few weeks. Um, they were going through hell because they were being bombarded uh, by the British uh, and the French. Uh, and it must have been appalling for them. But no accounts I've come across have survived. The the only um, thing I have come across, and it's always struck me, it was purely from the male point of view, one of the junior artillery officers, Um, In Sebastopol was Leo Tolstoy, who, of course, went on to become possibly Russia's greatest author of war and peace and so on. And um, uh, he spoke to uh, British prisoners um, and uh, he realized that they were streets ahead. Uh, of his own troops in terms of morale. They knew why they were there. They knew what they were fighting for. They believed in what they were fighting for, intensely proud of their regiments and their country. Um, And by comparison, Tolstoy says, his own soldiers were awful. They, They were conscripts. They were serfs peasants they literally were slaves uh, they had nothing like the the status and the morale uh, of the troop that, that he was fighting and I can only conclude that the same would probably have been true of the women but that's only a guess I don't know.
2: Do we have because occasionally you get these sort of stories of, of individual women who basically disguise themselves as men um, oh. inverted commas <laughs> disguised themselves because I'm not <laughs> being funny but There are certain aspects of a woman's life that are very difficult to disguise um, that go out on campaign and supposedly everybody's clueless that um, these soldiers are are women Um, up until the moment they're wounded and then suddenly, oh, shock, we didn't realise until we had to dress the wound in her chest (laughs) that she was a woman Um, and, and all of this kind of stuff. Do we have any stories of women disguising their identity and going out to fight uh, obviously, within regiments, sort of having signed up back along, and and just it all being quietly ignored until it becomes impossible to ignore the fact that you are treating a woman and not a man.
3: Sure, I, I haven't come across any in the in, in the Crimea. No, um, the examples I know of are, are all late eighteenth century, and I'm sure you you know them as well as I do. Uh, and it it does seem bizarre. I think it it's one of those areas that people don't really like to research very much and like to write about with it the sensitivities that are involved these days um, in that people are so easily offended and upset but it, it is a fascinating psychological thing isn't it I mean why on earth as a as a woman would you want to go out and take your chances with the men I, I I can't I don't understand the mindset of anybody who does that uh but maybe that's just me I don't know uh but I I certainly haven't come across any examples of it in the 1850s now
2: yeah I've never bought this idea that they didn't know I've, oh, I've never bought War
1: they know they're just like they're turning a blind eye or they're just yeah. like, like you're my little sisters now, so I'm going to look after you. And it's it's like, oh, no, boobs. What a surprise.
3: (laughs) Yeah, quite. In
1: in the First World War, uh, the Russian women doing it, they they had a a sort of uh, an enabler male enabler who knew full well that he was putting a woman in the army and talking her into a regiment
3: and stuff. And yeah, sure. yeah
1: I shaved my head and no one could tell I was a yeah. female. Mm. Yeah,
3: that's right. And, and in World War II, um, they were a positive asset because, and I hate to say this, my wife constantly says it's true. I think she's right. Women are better shots than men by and large. So you would find a surprising number of snipers, uh, in the red army uh in world war ii um and the germans had a whole unit of um uh, pilots fighter plane pilots in the Luftwaffe. so uh, just occasionally you you find that they're given their head and they always perform well always but britain is far too high band for that you'll never get anything of that kind at all until very very recently
2: See Alex has gone and tried some uh, World War 1 era weaponry and having looked at her score sheet um, it's a hell of a lot better than anything I'd expect I'd produce. There um, you go. <laughs> so I'm I'd be worried if I was facing off Alex in the water <laughs> end.
1: Do you know what ironically though? I couldn't fire the German one for shit because the recall was horrible. Uh, and, a so field and like I'm nine out of ten on the first shot. I was
3: Very like, good. <laughs> my shoulder knew, my shoulder knew it was a British rifle. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I I I bowed you, Alex. That, that's wonderful. <laughs>
1: yeah couldn't hit a barn door with anything else
2: but the. Lift. <laughs> the thing we've also got to think about as we start to sadly wrap this one up. It's been another brilliant one, is kind of legacy. Does anything change? I mean, I was going to ask you how much changes off the back of their work. Um, I suppose this depends on who we're talking about in terms of they, because we all know about the Florence Nightingale legacy. But in terms of army attitudes, particularly towards women within the army as a whole? Do we see much changing? Or is this just, you know, the, the 19th century continues on in the 19th century's way? Because you've got to bear in mind that it's not until the early 20th century that we start to see any progress on things like women's right to vote. So, you know, deeply patriarchal society continues for a good 50 odd years.
3: That's exactly right. And it's it's a depressing answer, uh, Zach, but I think, yeah, the answer is none, Um, because I think in part Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole were seen as mavericks. They didn't fit the norm. They they weren't the pattern. It's not what it's not what the fair sex is supposed to do. And in in that Victorian phrase, the fair sex, you you've got all all the all the bigotry, uh, the, the misogyny. It, ha- it has to be. You go back to an earlier century and, and you read people like um, John Milton, who everybody hails as such a great guy. Actually, he was. Horrible. He was a real misogynist. He detested women, thought they had no place uh, in society at all, apart from the the obvious. Things were better by the 19th century. And I I think I remember reading somewhere that by 1881, women were allowed to vote in local council elections. Uh, But that was a far cry from the vote. Um, actual suffrage in in a national election situation, which, as we all know, didn't happen until 1918. Uh, And only then because of of the work they had done in the war. Um, So I I don't think that it was successful at all. Uh, I think other things crowded in. Um, I think traditions are so deeply rooted in British society that um, it, it wasn't likely that we were going to be dragged kicking and screaming interestingly of course in russia there were changes um, because the army was so abysmal the the czar abolished serfdom in 1861 slavery was ended as a direct result uh, of the the appalling mess the russians had made uh, in the crimean war so that was a positive good for russia um even though they lost the war we won it and yet and I think that's probably the answer. We want it. So why change? It's the same earlier, isn't it? Why reform an army? Wellington said, "When it's the one that beat Napoleon, you know.
2: <laughs> exactly. And there are a whole myriad of problems that come off the back of that, which is a rant that we'll save for another day. My, what a joy. Um, you're coming back. Uh, I'm not even giving an option, you're coming back. We're we're going to have you on again in the future. <laughs> He's talking. our mid
1: 19th century correspondent now.
2: That's it.
3: It's official. You have the a title. It. Thank you, guys. Well, but listen, can, can I make a plea, Zach? Can you make sure that Alex hasn't got a Lee Enfield anywhere near her when I come back? Okay.
2: <laughs> I can make no promises where Alex is concerned. I am merely her chief of staff.
3: Uh, all I can
2: assure uh, all I can assure you is there will be no regular supply of ammunition.
3: Fantastic. My
2: it's been a joy. Um, your books, The Charge of the Heavy Brigade, Scarlet's 300 in the Crimea, um, your biography uh, of William Morris, The Pocket Hercules, are available on our History Hack bookstore. Folks, link in the description. You've heard the rant by now. Not Amazon, please. Let's not turn your money into rocket fuel. Let's turn it into, you know, things that support independent booksellers, support the podcast, and most importantly, support the lovely people like my who turn up and give their time for free on this show my an absolute joy thank you so much
3: thank you zach thank you alex
2: when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org